Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Our job is to just make sure that he or she is not getting tangled up in the rope. Once they figure that out and they stand still, they're looking at us, we're looking at them, and that's that's exactly the situation that they're going to see when we're going to flush a bird in the field. Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out UplandGunCompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the GDIY podcast presented by Standing Stone Supply. I am joined with a... Couple returning guests, one of our uh, more popular guests. We have Mark Gowron and Martha Imperato. Martha, did I say the last name correctly this time? I mess it up you every got time. It. <laughs> All right. Uh, for for the listeners that haven't uh, heard you guys before, go ahead and, and introduce yourselves and kind of what where you guys are and what you guys focus in on. Well, uh, my name's Mark Gorin. Martha and I own Webfoot Outdoors and Rimrock Kennels in Clayton, New York. We are a uh, full-service um, boarding and bird dog training facility. We also do some general obedience. And, I mean, that's pretty much our business model right there. You know, uh, we we focus on the bird dogs as far as pointing breeds, but we also do retrievers. Uh, been a long, long-time duck hunter and guide up here in the North Country. And uh, so the retrievers are a big part of my past, but the bird dogs and pointing dog breeds have been uh, something that we've been doing now for about a decade or a little bit more and doing just moving forward, having fun. Yeah. 
So y'all been around for a little bit. Y'all put y'all's hands on a on a few dogs, and so uh, yeah, just a few. <laughs> and uh, so what what we're doing here is you guys are kicking it off. This is pretty much the first episode of my woe series. You know, everybody talks about I need to know how to train my dog, how to woe, and everything. And and of course, you guys focus in on the woe post. And so when when I was piecing this together, the woe post came up, and I'm like, well, I got to get Mark and Martha back on to kind of walk us through the woe post. And uh, but first, before we get into all that woe post. I need you guys, what is your, your guys' definition of woe? Because we can't really talk about something until we actually come to the the common ground of the terminology because everybody has a different opinion or or definition for terminologies in the bird dog world. And I've heard woe is everything from stop moving your feet to essentially it's another stay command. What is your guys' definition and requirements for woe? Well, um, I, I, it's definitely not another state command. I, I would say the command woe, if you're going to use the command, um, is simply stand still. That that really, and, and, and as we go through the woe post here, you're going to kind of hear us talk a lot about that, about the dog standing still. If the dog can stand still and just stop moving, not move its feet, not move its head, not move anything. Um, th- then you you have a little bit more flexibility with what's going on in the field and, and what's going to happen with that bird if there's even a bird there. So it's it's simply to us. It's simply when when that command is given or cue is given more, um, the dog stops. They understand what that is and they stop. And I think we need to also incorporate not only standing still, um, non moving body parts. But it's time and level of distraction also. Every dog's going to time out. So you have to work past that time clock within your dog for standing still and the level of distraction. As a dog matures and is capable of standing still, we can increase the uh, duration of that time as well as the level of distraction. So ultimately, it's just standing still. So if they're moving, stop moving your feet. And then if you give it to them while they're standing there, just keep standing there. So it's kind of a a combination of stop moving as well as stay almost. Well, it, 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 we, we rarely do that. It's when the dog is still standing. It'd be like me telling you to sit right now. You're already <laughs> sitting. Right. You know? So there's no reason for me to give those redundant commands. And that that's where things get a little cloudy. Um, I, I think you hear it all the time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. To me, that's trust. So it's like telling a Labrador, stay, 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 or releasing them the instant the bird hits the water or ground because you're not trusting their steadiness. Um, that's not what we do. We, we, we teach the dog, train the dog to the point where it's a learned, willing response. They know exactly what they're supposed to do, and they do it because they want to. Mm-hmm. And then only at that point do we name it. Um, we're not, we don't overlay the word woe when they are stopped initially or standing there for a period of time. Once we feel we get the behavior we want, then we name it. Yeah. And, and, and the dog, the dog starts to understand that much more quickly. 
Yep. We're speaking to it in a way that it can understand versus the way we want it to understand. Yep. And you you hit on exactly kind of where I was wanting to go on this is is this is not a command or a cue that, like you said, you see, and and especially on social media, YouTube, whatever, uh, so many people will have a dog on point. They're already standing there, and then you just hear it over and over and over again, whoa, 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 and the dog's not even trying to move. So that's that's ultimately what I was wanting to get to, and you guys described it perfectly, is trust. You know, you have to trust that the dog is going to hold that point or hold that initial woe or something like that, but by you just repeating it over and over and over again, you're not really accomplishing anything, and you could make the argument that you're honestly watering it down for the most part. You're absolutely watering it down. The other thing you're doing is if the dog doesn't stay standing still, you have now an opportunity to train. Mm-hmm. So you're eliminating an opportunity to train by begging it to stay still uh, or stand standard or whatever your definition of woe is. So uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of, it's, again, it get, that's where it gets a little cloudy. You know, there's no reason to, to tell a dog, just, just like me telling you to sit, there's no reason for the, me to tell a dog to, to stop because it's already stopped. So that command only means to stop, right. not stay. It, it only means one thing. And, and I think if people think back to their training on everything that they do with the dog, if they, if they're using different commands for the same action or using that command multiple times when the dog is actually doing the action, they're not getting the response that they're looking for. It, it, you know, it, like you say, watering it down, it no longer means as much to the dog. Yeah. And that's really true on, on every command that we teach these dogs if you overuse it when it's not the timing isn't right then uh then it it doesn't it's meaningless by the end of it and so it's kind of like everything you you you're you're trying to what martha was talking about you're teaching the action and before you even name it martha can you elaborate a little bit more on that and why that's so important when when working on something such as woe um i think a lot of times if we uh, name this action before we actually get what we want. Um, for instance, if a, if a dog is standing still and then he creeps forward or he, you know, jumps forward and then we say, whoa, again, we're labeling what behavior? Are we labeling the standing still? Are we labeling the creeping? Are we labeling the, the movement forward? So, um, I want to make sure I get that solid um, understanding of um, just being still. Right. And so what what are you guys working on before you officially start training woe? So what, what are the preconditions that you require to say, this dog is ready to take the next step. It is ready for woe. You know, I know you guys are you're getting a puppy home and everything you're building kind of leads into the next thing. So where in the timeline in your guys' program does woe start? What what are the checklists that they should already have done under them uh, before you guys begin the journey of woe? Well, Martha's the absolute queen of this because of the, <laughs> what, we, what, we, what we do with our litters um, and any new puppy that would come into and come into um, with us either training or our own, um, we start extremely early. Like as soon as the the puppies can stand, um, you know, three weeks or so, um, when I take them out to do the, you know, super puppy program, weigh them, 
maybe um, deworm them or medicate them as, as needed along the way. At three weeks of age, they're uh, standing. I, I have my hands on them and physically making them stand on a bench. It might be a split second, but they're starting to learn at that point how to stand still. So for me, as a breeder, it starts at, you know, say three weeks. Uh, as a, a new puppy owner, if, if somebody gets a puppy at eight weeks, when that dog comes in the door, one of his exercises is to stand still. Um, that's something an owner can do throughout the day that doesn't require birds, doesn't require special equipment. It's just about standing still. Uh, you get a rescue, you get a dog that's 12 months old. One of the things you can do is make him stand still. Yeah. And, and it, it goes into the, retrie the retrieving breeds and flushing breeds. They, they simply sit still. Right. There's no difference um, whether they sit still for their for their meal, whether they sit still to go outside or, or whatever it, it is that you want. That's that's the beginning of their steadiness program, uh, steadiness training. So it, we're really not it, – it's, it's more taking the chase away than it is even standing still. The dog learns to stand still. They know they're standing still. They're already standing still when the bird clutches, let's say, or the door opens. Now it's the dog moves forward. That's when we have the opportunity to give this command whoa or give them a cue for whoa. And and that's if we if we do it early, we had a apprentice here one time and said, uh, what do you say? Early, early, yeah, I was, early education. Yeah, I was explaining different things that we do. And um, he was from uh, Taiwan and he looked at me and he said, Miss Martha, he said, um, in Taiwan, we believe in early education. <laughs> that, that kind of stuff. It was perfect. It was, it was perfect. So we were doing puppy training and again, three, three weeks old up, up until the dogs left. And uh, they were they, they took to it. They understood how to stand still. And if you can get the dog to stand still before you even start all of this training, um, for well, much later on in their in their development, they get it. Yeah. it's quick. It's 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 very quick. And, and ultimately, you know, to to full circle here, that's what we're talking about: is early intervention, early training, whatever you want to call it. Just teaching the dog stand still is okay. And then later on is when you're going to label it. You're going to name it later on, uh, because a lot of people. I don't think that enough people really uh, put enough emphasis or or understanding that just because you're not naming it or calling it something, the dog's still learning that behavior that you're going to use later on when it does come time to to label it. So and and something that you guys even do more so than than just stuff in the kennel at three weeks old. When you get a new dog, we did an entire episode a couple years ago when, when you guys were first on about the chain gang and, and just getting the dog used to the pressure and all that stuff that kind of leads you into this overall steadiness program. And so I think that was episode 94, if I remember correctly. Uh, <laughs> and, and But that one was really eye-opening when you actually start seeing to where if you go out there with a dog that hasn't been taught anything, it doesn't know how to stand still, hasn't been uh, introduced to the chain gang or anything in, uh, in terms of pressure, would you say that you, you may not fail going into the woe post, but you're making it exponentially harder or more difficult? Is that accurate? 
You're definitely not going to fail at the wool post, but yes, absolutely. That it's it, it. Anytime you introduce something like that and the dog has no experience whatsoever with any kind of pressure or any kind of restraint or or just just making him do something that he doesn't know that he's supposed to do, there's going to be stress. That you know, and when you get stress, the dog reacts and it's going to do whatever worked in the past: whine, bark, spin, jump. Um, sit down, all kinds of different things. So yes, it's much more difficult. And, and it's kind of funny you talk about the chain gang. Martha puts the dogs on the chain gang in the whelping box probably just after three weeks. Yeah, and, you know, depending on the litter, four to six weeks of age, they're on a chain gang. I mean, it's a mini chain gang and um, it's for short periods of time. And um, they adapt and learn so quickly it, it's amazing. We have videos of, of how quickly they just um, figure it out. And then when it, be, when it comes time to formal training, they know no other way to do it. So that's what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Versus a dog that's got a lot of history or no, you know, no structure whatsoever coming into this. And then we structure things and they tend to bounce a little bit, you know, but, but, it, but it's not something that you're not going to succeed at. It's just going to make it more difficult. That's yeah. all. So let's go ahead. The the chain gang, if people are, are they want to hear more on that, again, go check it out, episode 94. I'll have the link down in the show notes uh, talking about the intangible benefits and how this woe post, what we're about to really dive deep on, builds off of that. Let's go ahead and get into the woe post. Go ahead and define or, or explain, describe the, the woe post to us, the kind of the setup as well as kind of the purpose or reasoning behind all of it. The set the setup is is just what it sounds like a post. You can use a tree, you can use um, a fence post, or you can use anything that's stationary in the ground. You put a piece of um, uh, check cord diameter or a little bit thicker diameter rope about an inch diameter. Yeah, three quarters to an inch diameter rope with a snap on it comes off of that post, and that's what goes to the dog. And it should be soft, not technically a, what we consider a check cord. It's a little bit softer than a check cord. It's got a little pliable. Yeah, um, and that's not for the comfort of the dog, although that you got to think about that. It's more for the pliability to go around the dog's flank. Okay. So when it goes around the dog's, it comes up through the backside of the dog, between the back legs, over the top of the dog, and then behind the rope that went between the legs, creating a half hitch below the dog on the dog's belly or flank. And then the rope goes through the front legs on the bottom of the belly and attaches to the D-ring on the neck. So, and, and that's that's really the harness of the wool post rope. Then what you do is you tie your or snap your your check cord to that same D-ring. Now, this is a pointing breed, that same D-ring. And then when you bring the dog out to the end of the of the wool post rope, obviously it goes taunt, creates that tightness around the dog's flank and that point of contact beneath on the belly side, and the dog stops. Simple. You don't have to kill it. You don't have to pull it in half. You don't have to um, do any you know overpressure or anything like that. But the dog may do what we call a rodeo. Um, because they're feeling this pressure for the very first time. 
and they don't know what it is. So what they're going to do is they're going to try to stop that pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually that happens one to three times max, and then it's over. The dog starts to understand the way to make that more comfortable or whatever is to stand still. Yeah. So essentially you you have kind of two points of connection on the dog. You have one uh, rope or cord, the pliable cord, going from the post to the the, uh, belly of the dog, and then you're standing in front with another check cord attached to the D-ring on the collar at the front of it. And so essentially... The dog is used to the the point of contact on the neck because that's what we were just talking about, the the importance of the chain gang and, and getting it used to it. But this is the first time it's been introduced to a point of contact on the belly. Is that correct? That's correct. It makes it's important to note that once it creates that half inch around the flank, that 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 wool post rope continues under the dog's belly and hooks between the dog's legs onto that same D ring that your check cord is hooked to. So they're both hooked to the neck. Right. And and I think it's important to ha- to emphasize what you're just talking about to where you're not just dragging the dog out to get to the end of the, the cord attached to the woe post. It's very subtle. And I think this was one of the, the key takeaways I took to it when I first saw, saw it in action is, you know, you, you hear people describe it. You see it on social media. You can see a lot of bad renditions of it. But ultimately, when when you get to watch somebody that really knows what they're doing is it's very subtle. You know, you're just very gently almost pulling on the cord to get kind of get it to the end of the rope. And like you said, when the dog does the rodeo or flip out, it's not like you're trying to physically will it into standing. It's just kind of like both points of contact and the pressure will take care of it. All you have to do is just hold the pressure. Right. Um, you know, the main thing is um, you're there for support. So if you keep um, tension on the rope, you're keeping the ropes out of the dog's legs. You're keeping the dog from injuring itself. You're just kind of balancing uh the rodeo per se of the dog and you only apply the pressure that the dog is giving to you to balance that out. So if you over pressure, you're going to create more of a a rodeo or a fight. If you under pressure, you're going to create more of an opportunity for maybe the dog to get tangled in the rope and, um, you know, cause maybe injury to a leg or your point of contact isn't going to be there. So you're, you're not efficiently doing the woe pose. Um, uh, you know, about the equipment, like Mark said, the post, um, your, your initial rope that comes off of the uh, woe post is that, that softer cord. It's about 20 feet. And then make sure you got a nice sturdy collar with um, not, no fast tech buckles, yeah. um, you know, a nice D ring so that you can hook both of those uh, clips to the collar has to be tight so it doesn't slip off their head. Again, you know, you lose ground if your equipment isn't right and, and you lose some technique there. And then the, the cord coming from the dog to your hand can be that nice, sturdy, uh, stiff check cord. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and you, you definitely don't want to use any any collars that have breakaways or 
quick, like fast tech buckles and stuff like that. Um, because if they fail, now the dog wins one, and yet that you definitely don't want to have happen. And the second thing is, is the dog could get hurt. You know, I mean, because then they're going to get tangled up. Your only job when that dog is fighting the roll post and initially, and again, it's one to three times, um, is is just make sure that that dog doesn't get tangled up in those ropes. Let him or her do whatever they're going to do. They're creating their own problem. And then once they figure out that by standing still, that problem goes away, they no longer have a problem. Now we're starting the onset of a learned willing response. Remember, we're not trying to force anything. We're not trying to to uh, control anything. We're trying to get them to understand and do it because they want to, not because we made them do it. And and, and the other thing is, it, it just stands still because they're cued. That development of that point of contact, which is that half hitch on their belly, that's that point of contact, which will later transfer to the e collar. Um, that point of contact is the cue to stop. Mm. So are you guys using the same post over and over again? So every time you do a session, are you going out to the, the same post or are you having to change locations every time? You can you can use the same area, um, but it needs to be a relatively, well, it could be good size area, but you want to have at least three posts. Um, if, you, if you only have one post, you know, backyard, whatever, you only have one post, make sure you're going in a different direction so the dog has a different view. Otherwise, you'll create a giant place board and they'll only stand there in that spot. Like they'll start to associate it um, sooner. And we don't want an association. We want a point of contact stop. We don't want an association stop. Meaning if you had a dog that was on a, a, like a chain system, they learn they can run so far and they stop before they hit the end of it, right? right? Like if they're in the yard or tied out somewhere, and you'll see where they've created that barrier on the, their own. So that'll happen on the woe post if you don't change positions. So ideally, um, I think Delmar was the one who said they learn in threes. So Threes and sevens. Threes and sevens. Threes and sevens, huh? Prime numbers, man. Uh, so but again, all that prep that we did, you know, the obstacles that we go over with the command lead, the chain gang that we were teaching the dog, and the command lead all leads itself to the dog being able to get through this portion of it quickly, this association, or I'm sorry, the introduction quickly of the wall post. Without right. much stress or, or pressure needed to make that dog understand. So essentially, you're you're just kind of warming the dog up, getting it used to an, a new pressure point on the belly or point of contact, at least. Uh, and you're changing it up so it doesn't just associate like Martha was saying. It's just like, oh, I know I can go 20 feet out from here before having to stop. You change up the location so it's not it's not figuring it out, I guess. Would it be overkill to change the the length of cord on the belly band portion of it? Like you said, twenty feet. Would it would there be any benefit to having a ten foot cord or a fifteen foot cord to help with that? Um, I don't. I don't think, think so. Yeah, I don't think so because the idea once you uh, get the dog hooked up and and standing still, at any point you might set the dog back a step or two, and then you're coming forward. So. Um, I don't think the length of the cord coming from the woe post makes that much of a difference, but 20 feet gives you enough 
uh, cord to uh, get it wrapped around the dog and have a little bit to work with. And you can you can drag the dog into the point of contact. Yeah, once they start to understand it, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the check cord portion of it, if you have anything longer than 20 feet on a check cord, you can't handle it. Yeah. No, it's just too much cord. So 20 feet seems to be the magic number uh, that you can handle. Uh, if yours is a little bit shorter, but these 50 foot check cords make two out of it. Yeah. It's just not, it's just not just practical. Get, along. get you a 50 foot cord and cut it in half. Cut it in half with another snap on it. It costs you five bucks. There you go. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're still in this introduction phase. So we, you just described the, the location and, and how the post is set up. Kind of walk me through, Mark, you, you said a couple times already, like one to three times, especially even if if they're doing the rodeo deal. Walk me through that first initial session as from the handler perspective. It's like you, you attach all of it. Are you, do you just walk out in front of the dog and you start reeling in until they kind of figure out the pressure? Are you calling them to you to, for them to figure it out? Kind of walk me through, pretend like I've never seen it before in my life and just kind of describe it for the listeners out there. The, the, obviously, the first thing we do is we we, we um, bring the dog up to the up to the wool post. I walk directly to the, the the wool post rope is laying on the ground. I walk directly to the snap of the wool post rope, and I kind of cast my dog out there. Uh, and, and when he gets to the you know halfway or three quarters of the way of that check cord, I want him looking directly away from me, and um, that that rope kind of right over the top of his back. And I give him a nice sharp pop and that dog will turn right around and come right to me almost every time now remember when we do the wool post we don't say a word like it's it's kind of eerie out there in our what we call the short grass uh, area like we'll be working three or three dogs or more and nobody's saying anything we don't say anything to the dog so i give him that sharp little pop the dog comes right back and comes to my side now that goes back to the chain gang where we taught him to be by our side episode 94 i think (laughs) (laughs) yep and then we we set him up on the wool post and put the tackle on now i'm standing with the dog on my left side i'm a right-handed shooter i want my dog on my left side and i walk out now the dog is naturally going to follow me i'm not saying a word to the dog as soon as that dog reaches now this is only a step and a half two steps maybe as soon as that dog reaches the end of that wool post it's going to stop him. And I continue to walk. I walk out to the end of my check cord and turn around. Now I'm looking at the dog. This is the very first time that this dog is stopped standing away from us. We really haven't had the opportunity to get the dog to stop and stand still where he cannot move because of the, the, obviously the apparatus that we have on him. So he can start to rodeo or, or sit down or whatever. And, and again, our job is to just make sure that he or she is not getting tangled up in the rope. Once they figure that out and they stand still, they're looking at us, we're looking at them. And that's, that's exactly the situation that they're going to see when we're pl- going to flush a bird in the field. This is the very first time that the dog is in front of us. Now the wool post, much like the force fetch table, when we did the force fetch series, uh, is one of the only times where you have 100% control. It's one of the only times in the entire training process of any dog that you have 100% control. That dog cannot move forward because of the post, 
and he cannot move back because of you. So he's got to stand there. So when they're standing there, and then and then they're going to tense up. Now they're going to probably try to look away a little bit, like to try to avoid you. You may get the rodeo, you know, and they're eventually standing, going to stand back up. If they quit, you got to stand them up because they will quit. Just lay down, play dead. <laughs> and just stand, you know, get them st- stood back up again, That then showing them what right looks like. And then you're looking for some sort of a mind, a thought process change, um, a lick, a swallow, their their eyes are going to get soft. They may adjust their feet a little bit to kind of lock into the pressure. They learned that on the chain gang again. Um, they may adjust their feet and just kind of like, whew. now if you've ever been in a harness or a parachute before or anything like that, you know that once you kind of loosen up your shoulders and kind of like lock into this thing, it becomes more comfortable. That's exactly what the dog is doing. They're buying in. That's the onset of them buying in to this pressure. Um, And once that happens, you slowly hand over hand, walk up to the dog, get to their left side. And I give them a little push on their withers, rub their shoulders to kind of, and I tell you what, if you put your hand on their shoulders and push down on them just slightly, you will feel that dog discharge all of that stress into your arm. It's amazing. And they'll just like, oh, he's got me. He still, <laughs> he still loves me. <laughs> and you rub their shoulders and you just calm them down. And then you slowly, and I mean slowly, take off the, the um, uh, wool post rope. You un- take, take the pressure off the flank, drop it to the ground. Again, they learned that on the chain gang. That's not a release command. Drop it to the ground so it makes that clank. Stand there for a second and discharge all of your emotions. And then heal the dog away. And then you go to the next, you, you kind of quarter a little bit, loosen him up, get his mind, you know, oh, okay, that life is great. And then go to the next post and do the exact same thing over again. And you do that every time. Now, that little push, I call that the first heart and hug. Right? I was in the <laughs> army, you know me, I was in the army for a very long time. So, and I was a first sergeant at one point, but you, you've given that little first heart hug. That's, that, that's your leader coming up to you. And remember, we're trying to be the pack leader here. You come up to the, that leader coming up to you saying, I got you. And I, I like to, I like to say a little saying here is like, I, we're going to do this. I'm right here with you. I will not let you fail, but we're going to do this my way. And once the, once you kind of communicate that to the dog by your actions, more than your words, they start to realize you're in control. You're the boss. You're the leader more than anything. And I'm going to follow you because I trust you now because you're not going to let me fail. And that's when that little pump and them rubbing of the shoulders come in. And that, that all this comes from Rick Smith, Delmer Smith and Ronnie Smith. And uh, I think, I think it's important at some point we put some references out there as to where people can read some of this right. stuff that they've, they've written which is outstanding and, you know, when I went down to Ronnie Smith Kennels and apprenticed specifically on the wool post, um, I learned a lot about this kind of behavior from us and how the dogs perceive it. Mm. And it, it makes the training go so much better. So that discharge of your own emotion when you're standing there is key, absolutely key. And you have to be in the, the right uh, perspective as far as your emotional, you know, 
don't go out there when you're upset or trying to, you know, figure out something. It's it, you know, your mind has to be clear because that all travels down that check cord to that dog. So, um, and, and some of the key points is that Mark was talking about, you know, you, as you walk away after the dog is hooked up, as you walk away, don't cue the dog, don't tell him to heal, don't tell him to calm anything. Um, at some point you want that dog to make that decision that I am not going to move forward. Um, so he's, he's got to learn it on his own. He's got to learn to, 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 that's that point where he has to resist that, that urge to go forward. Um, and as you move forward, you, you feel the dog come into that, uh, check cord or that, that belly, uh, harness, uh, you don't want to feel him hit it like, you know, really hard and bounce off that. You want him to walk into it and he comes into a stop. That's what you're going to see out in the field. We want a nice rolling stop and we want it to be under the least amount of pressure that's needed to make him do that because that's going to transfer to the numbers on the e-collar. So if we're running out to the end of that check cord and he's hitting it hard, then we're going to be up on a three or a four to make him stop. We don't want that. The lowest level possible. I mean, we're stopping dogs that are um, hard chargers on a low one. Right. Low one with, with a Garmin, which you can't yeah. feel. Most, right. I, I think I've found two people that can feel it. You know, I can't feel it. I mean, I, I put it every on my neck and my leg i can't feel it you know but but the dog no i swear to god they can hear it more than they can feel it. right and, i swear and I, I think you're the first person that used this this term a couple of years ago and i've been using it ever since is, is we're ultimately using the e-collar to drive the pressure down we want the lowest minimal amount of pressure to get to this and i think that's very important to to re-emphasize that you want that dog to gradually build into that pressure from that post because if we're trying to use the most minimal amount of pressure, to reiterate what Martha just said, you don't want the dog slamming into a four high on the e-collar, which is what they're doing if they're running at a full sprint and then slamming at the end of that rope. You want that dog to associate or, or realize every time I take a step, I'm adding more pressure to myself. And the more I struggle, the more pressure. It's the same exact lesson we're trying to get across these dogs when we're using the e-collar on anything else, whether it's force fetch or whatever. The dog learns I am driving that pressure up if I just... If I just do what I'm supposed to do, I can avoid the pressure altogether or do it at, at least at a, a, a much lower level, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It absolutely makes sense because we're not trying to control or force anything. As soon as you do that, you become a boss. When you become a boss, no one listens to their boss. Everybody listens to their leaders. Uh, that's what you have to have the dog look at you as that as that leader and, and we're we are driving you stole my you stole my thunder here we are driving <laughs> that pressure down as far as we can possibly get to me the low one's not a, it's not far enough but that's all we got um and it's like i want the gravity uh, of the weight of that of that check cord or or roll post rope to be more offensive than the e-collar will be once the dog understands it because it becomes a learned, willing response, not a forced response. Remember, we're not trying to control their behavior. We're trying to create their behavior. 
Mm-hmm. And then at some point that that one low is driven down where it ends up if needed, if the because there's masters at reading body language and association. If the flight of the bird doesn't stop the dog, if a sight of another dog on point doesn't stop the dog, um, that's, you know, if a, um, a shot, uh, a shot bird doesn't stop a dog all through association, we can overlay the word whoa and they stop. So in a sense, the collar gets driven down below one because it goes away. Right. Yep. May, makes total sense. Uh, another point of emphasis I think that we need to circle back on is the emotions because uh, ultimately what you're you're doing, you, you can call it a check cord or whatever, but ultimately it's the telephone cord. You're tethered from the handler to the dog. And this is something that, Martha, you really hammered home with me when I got to see you guys in action with this uh, a little bit last spring was – those dogs, we talk all the time, these dogs pick up on emotions, whether they're actually tethered to us or not. When we have the tether, it seems like it's even more amplified on those dogs picking up on your energy. And so if you're getting frustrated, if your head isn't in the right mindset, then the dog is going to feed off that energy. And when you're talking about something that you're not even using verbal cues or commands, it's even more so important or, or it should be a higher priority for you to keep your own emotions in check so that you can then go, like Mark said, you kind of release all that negative energy from that dog, especially on that first one. It's just kind of, it's like, hey, I got you. Everything here is good. It's calm. It's collected. It's intentional, but you still have to do it. Right. You know, I, I, I always... Because I, I spent most of my my adult life in the military, it's like this stuff is so army; it's not even funny. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you get a soldier doing the same thing; he's all stressed out. You give him a little rub, saying, "I got you, man," and you can see the stress come out of that individual. And it's the same with the dogs. You, but but it, it gives you the opportunity as the handler to intently watch and and listen to this dog's body language and how he's trying to communicate with you. And you're absolutely right about the check cord. If you have that check cord taunt the whole time he's on the check on the uh, wool post, you're 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 just tell you're just telegraphing information to him. You don't want to do that. You want to let that go slack and lay on the ground. I call that cutting the telephone line. It just goes onto the ground. That way, there's no communication between you and the dog as far as the check cord is concerned. All you're doing is standing there, giving him no emotion at all, trying to drain all that out of him. And they, they just stand there and they'll, they'll look at you. Sometimes they'll look away, the butterfly flying by or whatever. They get bored, depending on the age and maturity of the dog. Um, it's worse or distractions in the area. Uh, so uh, try. I'm glad I said that because I want to say about distractions. You don't want to do this in an area where where people are running, you know, there are three birds in the field and shooting away and screaming and hollering and yelling, whoa, and all that stuff. You want to do this in a, in a lower distraction environment, backyard, away from birds. No birds are introduced in the wool post at all. At any time. At any time. So you guys are, that's not even an eventual step to where you see, uh, you know, we're going to get into it on this series, you know, whether it's a place or walking or, or what have you. It seems like most methods, you're introducing flyaways uh, as kind of a test or a distraction. You guys never get to that point on the woe post. No, no absolutely, absolutely do not use birds. Mm. That's interesting. Okay. 
because we want the dog to understand the point of contact means stop. It has nothing to do with the bird. You know, this this whole half hitch around the flank, I'm sure people have seen it, where you put the half hitch around the flank, fly the bird off, the dog launches forward, you yank the dog back. You just made the bird back. You just created a, a, a you have a potential of doing that. It's not always that way, depending on the dog. But you have the potential of, of creating that negative thought about a flyaway bird. So we don't use birds at all during during this process. Mm-hmm. We, we, we don't even start that until after the dog is fully conditioned to the to the belly band on that point of contact in the field. Interesting. So let, let's go back. We just finished up our first first walkthrough. You just walked us through it. Uh, you do one to three in different WOPO se- sections. What are the next steps? How do we build off of that first initial lesson to where the dog kind of releases energy, accepts what's going on, what are we building to if we're not if we're not building towards birds and distractions? Just kind of walk me through the the step by step method ultimately that we're kind of eventually walking ourselves through. So there's uh, three phases to the woe post. The the prep which we just went over is um, the introduction to the the woe post. We're trying to get the dog to um, feel the point of contact, understand that there's something on his belly. It's like putting a, you know, a cinch on a horse for the first time, (laughs) you know, they have to feel it, not react to it. Okay. We don't want a reaction to it. It becomes uh, part of their normal equipment. You know, it's, it's just jewelry, you know? So uh, that's the introduction phase. And then we go to uh, the next phase is the association phase, which we kind of described uh, as that dog knowing that he's he's on a, you know, a 19 foot cord and he stops at 18 feet or 18 and a half. So he doesn't hit the end of it. Um, again, the hookups, the same calm. Um, you quarter up to the the uh, woe post. You do your um, natural um recall with the dog as you get towards the end you cast the dog out you uh cue the dog to come back and then he comes to your side wherever you know you want the retrieve um but we do it to the side so he comes to the side and he's actually in position to be hooked up um on the woe post he's uh standing calmly at this point um you Again, the, the hookup's important. You'll see a lot of the social media uh, hookup is, is not done properly for, you know, our style or the Hunt Smith style um, woe post. So it, it, you slowly feed the, the um, cord through his hind legs, uh, goes over his back, um, behind the initial uh, rope that went through his legs, and then you hook up to the d-ring at this point the dog is gonna at some point through these say six to twelve roughly 15 woe posts he's gonna start to not really want to come forward you're gonna start walking you're gonna feel him kind of hesitate behind you so either he's gonna stand in position or he's gonna slowly walk out to the end of that rope. Now, a mistake people make is that they're thinking, well, my dog's standing still, I'm just gonna leave him there. Um, 
or he's kind of moving forward and then he stops. So I'm just going to go to the end of the, the, the check cord that I'm holding. The dog needs to feel the stimulation or the point of contact every single time. He needs to be in motion and he needs to stop under pressure. We don't want him to stop under the association that he's going to get pressure. Mm. Okay. So if the dog stands still as I walk forward, Sometimes what I'll do is I'll actually face the dog and back up to the end of that rope. And then I slowly pull the dog into pressure until he feels the pressure. I hold it for a second and then I let my rope go lax. Uh, Then we wait for some form of acknowledgement. Some of the times the dogs will get those sleepy eyes they'll yawn. Um, they start to almost, um, sway back and forth. Like you think they're going to fall over cause they don't want to move. And they're trying so hard to stay still that it looks like they're just going to fall over. Um, or they reposition themselves, not backing out of the rope. They just reposition themselves. And that's our cue to go back to the dog. Um, and again, if we're not getting that, don't rush. Take your, you know, time and distances is where you're going to get those acknowledgments a sign or they're going to end up standing long for longer periods of time. Um, you walk back to your dog slowly. If the dog moves or tries to back out of it, you just apply pressure again. Don't be quick to do it. You want to get a nice slow rolling stop so apply the pressure the dog stops he settles in you let the pressure go and walk back uh to the dog if the dog is a dog that flags a lot you can spend some time on the uh the woe post when that dog is really flagging you can apply pressure and actually stop that tail so that that's a way of styling quote unquote styling up a dog almost cutting out that that flagging just by doing what you're already doing, right? So you don't have to sit sit there and like, you know, just stop the tail or, or pet the tail up or anything. You can actually stop the flagging by just using the same exact tools and stuff you're already set up for. Right. And ideally, um, a lot of people do it, and this is just the way we do it. Um, they try to stroke that tail up, make it stand nice and tall. We want it to come from in the dog. The mind controls the tail. So it's telling you something. So I don't want to artificially stroke it up. So if the if the tail's flagging, the mind is active. I don't have the mind. I need the mind to have the rest of the body, right? So you kind of welcome what they're telling you and we try to calm that down by controlling the mind. And then when we control the mind or get a hold of the mind, you know, get the focus, we're going to get the tail. Mm. So. And then when we have the mind, the body and the tail, we've got a, a rock solid rock star in the field. Yeah. And it's, it's really that simple. <clears throat> and a lot of what Martha just described sounds exactly like what I described on the intro. And it really is because, but the, the difference is the dog is starting to accept it. 
they're getting better and better and better, more calm, more confident as the process goes on. And then we move into the next phase. Mm. And what is that third phase? So you got so far we have the introduction and we have the association. What what's that third phase? The the third phase of the post would would be the transition, right? Okay. Where the dog's starting to understand the pressure. They're accepting all, you know, like they're not squirming around while you're hooking them up and all that other stuff. They're coming directly to your side. You're standing there calm and confident. You hook them up, you go out to the end of the wall post. And what's, what you're going to start to see is they're going to start to resist. They're going to want to drag. They're, they're like, you're going to, Martha was just saying, you know, you apply that pressure and kind of pull them into the point of contact. And now they're going to drag even more. So what we do is we loosen, we, we take the dog and we set them back maybe six to six inches to a foot. Just set them right back on the line and loosen up that, that belly band a little bit, that, that half inch. Just loosen it up. And then when you walk back out to the end of your check cord, if the dog hasn't moved, it knows it's not supposed to move. So then we throw, we might throw a little Frisbee or our glove or our hat. The first one is always directly in front of the dog. So if the dog lunges forward, not side to side, directly in front of the dog, right in line with the, with the two ropes. When the dog lunges forward, he gets a consequence. You felt that? They go, and I guarantee you that dog is going to do that once. <laughs> if you've done your job and it's they're not going to do it hard but they're going to do it once and that's one of the reasons why we don't use birds because again yeah. we don't want negative thought on the bird so then you throw them throw it maybe to the right and maybe to the left but you don't do this a lot these distractions are done maybe two posts that's about it once you've got that the dog is dragging we start to have a dog that that is understanding this pressure and what it means and then you, you, you do what you call a 180. So we bring the dog out to the end of the wool post. The dog stops. The wool post rope. The dog stops. Knows it's supposed to stop. We stand there. I mean, it, it, it could go on for 15 minutes just having the dog stand there. Right? Now, those of you that ever hunted birds out on the prairies or the mountains or whatever, sometimes those dogs got to stand there for a significant amount of time before you can even get to them or find them. So there's where that dog is starting to learn all that. You just stand there until, until you're cued to move. So you walk up, walk down to the end of the, your check cord to the dog. You turn, you give them that pump, rub their shoulders, same, same. And then you turn left right into the dog. So you're basically cutting that dog off and you make a 180 degree turn and start walking the other way towards the post. When you walk towards the post, the dog is going to follow you. Usually on the first post, the dog is going to follow you. It might drag for a little bit and then start to follow you. And then it's going to hit the end of that, that wool post rope on the other side. This is the very first time you've ever stopped your dog on the move. Okay, so he and he hits that wool post, getting that consequence, same consequence he felt when you threw your hat down on the line, in the line of the rope. So now you do this eh, three to nine post maximum. I, it shouldn't last that long. And not it's important to note that not all dogs will do the 180. Some will just walk forever and they'll never figure it out. That's okay. Um, but most will figure it out. So the, the second time you do it, they might drag a little bit, walk, and then start to drag again because they know that's coming. And then by the time you're done with a 180, they'll drag the entire way. Once the dog drags the entire way, 
you are 100% sure that you're ready to put that belly band on the dog the first time. And that's the transition phase. It's no different than the intro phase. It's just the dog is more calm and confident. So you've done this, you've done between, say, 30, 25 to 40 posts in total, in sets of threes or sevens. And and that might sound like a lot, but in the the, the course of training, it saves you time in the long run. Oh, my God. And say if you did three woe posts a day, you know, in, in 10 days, you've already done 30. It, it's really not that much time. And, you know, we've had two dogs that have, have completely done this program from, you know, either three weeks of age, you know, um, to, well, um, eight weeks and up. And by the time they're a year old, they're steady to wing shot and fall with no pressure. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. They what? look good. They don't look beat up. It's, it's fun for them. It's low, really low pressure compared to, you know, what I've, I've done in the past, what I've seen done, what I still see done. Um, these young dogs, it's too much pressure too fast um, because they're not ready for it. They weren't prepped, you know. And when Martha says two dogs, these are two dogs that we personally own. Yeah. We've done hundreds of dogs, hundreds and hundreds of dogs on the wool post and seen the results of it. And our clients have as well. But um, it's important to know that that um, if you go too fast, like that 10 days is too fast. The dog can't process that that quickly. That's probably the biggest mistake we see is people look at this as a task. I got to get it over with. than it is a training event or session. And they go too fast. They want to get it done. Oh my dog, eight, I got it done in eight posts. No, you didn't. The dog doesn't fully mentally understand what you're trying to, to convey to it. And, and when, when the dog is done and it, it's truly ready for the belly band, the e-collar, it's just smooth. It's mm-hmm. super smooth. Uh, and that will lend itself to transferring that belly band from the belly and then transferring it up to the neck, and then you're completely done. Yeah. And let's go ahead and get into the transition. Let's get into the belly band. We're going from the woe post. You just described the 180 and kind of testing to make sure that we're ready for for the transition phase. Let's say we're in the transition phase. What are we doing with the e-collar? Are we starting at the woe post for like the first one and then going to the belly collar for the second or third iteration of your session? you're you're shaking your head so i know that right now just go ahead and jump in and tell me like how are you doing the step-by-step transition uh so once the dog has learned to um you know stand still or drag accept that point of contact we know he's ready for the um belly band collar it gets applied just in front of the if it's a male dog just in front of the sheath um like about where the the um, umbilical cord would be, the navel, uh, the the trans or the receiver itself is on the belly. It's okay, and then uh, as we tighten it up, 
I'd leave it on loose initially and I, I heal the dog around. We, we use our course a lot, our obstacle course. So we get the dogs up and down on the obstacles. They're used to the obstacles. They're used to stopping on the obstacles. So as we walk them around, we slowly tighten the band up. It has to have a good point of contact. Like you can't keep this band loose because what'll happen is as the dog makes a stride in the field, his belly gets smaller and it'll be loose and won't be a point of contact. Then when he, his feet hit the ground, his belly's going to be wider. He's going to have a, a tight point of contact. And then as you use your levels of stimulation, you'll think that he's not feeling it. So you go up because he, the collar was loose. When he comes down on the ground, the collar's tight and you're at a too high of a level. Okay, so the the fitting of the collar is extremely important. I don't tighten it up right away too tight because then you'll see the dogs that don't want to move. If the the woe post is done right, when you put that e-collar on, you don't even use the stimulation. They're like, I'm not supposed to move. You have to drag them kind of forward. So I slowly tighten it up, get them used to the feel of it. And then we we use the course a lot. Um, for again, another form of prep. So we know that the dog understands exactly what we want before we put them on birds. So as we're moving along, um, we'll be healing with the dog and we use the Garmin um, 550s because of the uh, low, medium, high range that they have. And we start on a, um, a one low and we roll up until the dog stops. And by roll, you mean just by increasing the pressure. So you're going from one low to medium to high and uh, onward if you need it, but you shouldn't need it if you, if what you guys said is, you know, if you've done everything that you're supposed to do up to this point, more than likely you shouldn't have to climb up to a two. Um, not usually, but if the dog has been conditioned to an e-collar prior to coming here, I hate to say it, sometimes we have to go higher because the owner has conditioned that dog to higher levels. Um, belly is always more sensitive. So typically, you know, that's not the case, but there are times you have to go up. And then once you go up, we're right back down. Mm-hmm. So, and you have to make sure our, you leave it on continuous setting And when you roll from a low, medium to high, you have to make sure that you're not letting off the buttons. Like to check that, you know, when it's not on the dog, roll your fingers up through a low, medium, high. If you see that light go on and off, you're not doing continuous pressure. And that's confusing to the dog down the road. So um, leave it on the continuous setting and make sure you can roll from a low, medium, high to maybe a too low, medium, high without that button going off. Yeah. And anybody that's used this collar, you can actually do this with just one thumb. You don't have to have multiple hands, multiple fingers. You can literally, you just 
you have it vertical in your hand and you have pretty much your thumb over overlaying both buttons. And I think you guys even named it heel toe heel to where it's just like you're hitting that low button. Then you can hit that high button or medium button without taking the pressure off of the low. And then you can go into the high without taking the pressure off of medium. And, it, and it's really neat. Or you can use multiple fingers. Uh, anybody that, that's listening to this, just look up the Garmin 550 collar and you'll kind of that should make a little bit more sense to you. Yeah, and that's why we use that product. And there's other ones out there. I mean, you know, they're all pretty much on the same levels. It's just different features, and that's why we use that feature. The other thing is, is it allows us to go so low. Mm. And other ones go that low as well. But it's just, but they don't have, they don't lend themselves to do what we call this rolling stop. Right. It, it works really well. And some of the common mistakes people get is, or do is as you're going along, you have a tendency to stop when you're pushing those buttons on the collar because you're thinking, I want my dog to stop. So you stop and the dog stops. So the dog is stopping because you're stopping, not because of the conditioning response to the e-collar. Or as you're walking along, we have people apply the pressure and drop the leash once the dog is stopped. People have a tendency to walk along, drop the leash, and then the dog stops because they're stopping because the leash hits the ground, not because of the pressure that's applied from the e-collar. And they're getting all this through association and what they really need to do, because once the birds are introduced, there's none of this out there. So you have to make sure that they don't cue off of anything else but the point of contact, POC. So that's a big one. That, they're smart, man. These oh, dogs yeah. are smart. But you know, I've listened to quite a few of your of your episodes, and almost all of them talk about foundation. You know, and everything we've talked about up to this e collar has been prep, 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 prep. We're going through thirty days of prep on this wool post, so this dog fully understands this point of contact. Um, and and once they do, boy, I tell you it. They buy in and they know what that means and they just stop. Not because it hurts, because that's what they're supposed to do. It becomes a learned, willing response. So that's really important that that uh, there's no other cue other than that that point of contact that we've developed. So that's that's big. And it's just imperative for handlers to realize that not whether it's not even on this method or the others that that these little small things those dogs can pick up on that and they can harp on that. They, they're learning the wrong things, whether it's this method or another method. That's why it's so important to have your, your head in the right mind space and be, be situationally aware of what you're doing time and time again. And I preach on this all the time. Start recording your, your training sessions with the video, because if you're training by yourself, you're doing these things and you don't even realize that you're doing it. The only way that you're going to pick up on that is by watching yourself back in action. And that really shows itself big in healing. Right. Healing's huge. People don't realize how much, how many things they're doing with that lead or not doing. And, and the dog is, that's why the dog's not healing with you. And you'll never get there if you don't, if you don't tell the dog what it's supposed to do. So all this prep and make no mistake, we can slap this belly band on this dog first day and get him to stop. No doubt about it. Yes. And then for people, well, I don't need to do the wolf post. They want that quick fix Throw the belly band on, stop the dog. I've I've seen videos. Well, the dog's got to be through a hunting season. He needs to understand the word. Well, well, 
no. Um, that's why we're doing all this prep. And then they just put the belly band on them and stop the dog. And does the dog stop? Absolutely. Then they throw a bird and stop the dog. Um, will that work? But I guarantee you, you're going to be on higher levels. I guarantee you. And when that, when the dog, when that desire to get that bird is higher than what your e-collar can produce, you're going to start being up on the highest of levels and the dog will time out and just say, I'll mm-hmm. take it. It's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to run through the pressure. <laughs> That's right. It's worth it. Uh, it's worth it. Give me the bird. Uh, Martha, let's let's jump back in. Let's continue the transition because you just described everything uh, and a lot of really good notes on, you know, if you drop the leash, if you stop, that's a very common one is you stopping. You know, we see that all the time, not even just woe training, but in, in the field, you know, it's like people will just stop next to where they know they planted a bird and then the dog comes in and stops because that person stops. So like all this overlays and overlaps each other. Uh w- Let's continue on on the transition journey, though. Okay, so we'll what we do is with our obstacles, the dogs, you know, through our training process, you know, again, we go through the chain gang, we do obstacles as, as part of their foundation. So the dogs know we're going to come up and we're going to stop prior to going on an obstacle. We're going to cue them to go up the obstacle. We're going to stop them on the obstacle. We're going to cue them to go off. We're going to stop them off the obstacle, and then we're going to cue them to move on. So it's almost uh, an easy uh, step-by-step process for the dog to learn now that we pair the... um, command lead up with the pressure on the belly band. So um, stop means um, it's easier for them to transition into it, I guess. So we're, we're going to what they know. We're adding the new element of the belly band, pairing them up, and then that slowly the command lead fades away and we're doing all the stopping on the belly band and then we vary it we might not stop right at the obstacle we might go over a few obstacles and then stop on an obstacle or stop before an obstacle and then not do it again and then we go to the ground where we're stopping actually between obstacles and then once we know that that dog is uh, understanding that will increase our speed, we'll start um, jogging along, use the uh, rolling stop, and the dog stops, and we continue to go. Then we'll, once they're solid there, we'll start adding distractions. We'll work other dogs. We'll stand several dogs together. We'll uh, work... Um, you know, the obstacles. And at this point, there's, there's no birds. Okay. The, the bird, the dogs are getting their bird work at a different part of the training. Okay. So, uh, in the foundation, we're doing both bird work and woe posting totally separate sessions. And then what we'll end up doing is we'll incorporate, um, once we know that's solid, we'll start incorporating um, flyaway drills at a distance. Um, 
with either single dogs or multiple dogs. And then all we do is it, you know, as you move, this pressure means just stop. It has nothing to do with the bird, but we've added another level of distraction. Mm. So ultimately it, it, you're going through this entire program. You still haven't even named the behavior. It's just you, you've created the behavior. You've created it every step of the way. Like you said, you're building off what you've already set up and prepped, going to the new, and then fast forward all the way into the transition phase to the belly collar. Now you're finally on birds, and I haven't heard you once say, give the dog a command. You haven't used the word woe once. And so you're finally on birds, and like you said, the dog learns to stop on these birds without even the command or anything like that. So I'm assuming after the birds, is that when you finally name it? Well, you know, everybody probably does it a a little bit different with their timing. I probably won't name it until I'm on the neck. The dog is doing it perfectly. Yeah. And and again, I, I'm sure you can name it earlier than that. Um, you get into such a, a training mode that there's such a communication between you and your dog. And I find it uh, pretty fascinating. Um, they're masters at reading body language. They know what we want um, through what we've um, associated with every single training process we've done. So um, I, I really don't name it until I, I probably get to the neck. And um, I used it um, when we were out hunting this year. Um, I let other people shoot initially while I was handling my dog. And once I knew she was steady, I started to shoot. And if I needed to reinforce anything as I shot or if she took a step to go for a retrieve, I could just say, whoa, to reinforce it. If she took a step or so and it was there, I didn't it was a nice, quiet, whoa. So, so it wasn't the Yosemite Sam scream yeah. across the valley. And, Whoa! And, <laughs> and, it, and it was more because I have my gun in my hand and not my transmitter. Right. And it's important to know that that right. was a 10-month-old puppy. So yeah. A 10-and-a-half-month-old puppy that had gone through the process, and we never really we, we never, never really said any commands to it. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, we're, not, we're doing everything through cues, points of contact, and body language. So there's very, very, very little. If you think about it, when you do give those commands, you kind of lower the standard, you know. So that's where you want to go. That's where you want to be, and this this will help you get there. I, I'm convinced mm-hmm. of it. That's why we use it. Well, and, and I I think I I might have skipped over it. The transition from the belly to the to the neck collar. Talk to me about that real quick because I know you know, like you said. That that's the end goal. You don't want to have to go hunting with a belly collar on your dog all the time. So how are we getting from the belly to the neck? And one thing I want to say about the belly collar, everybody wants to get off of the belly band. Um, you know, for us, we, we get off of it quicker because this is what we do. Right. And um, we have availability, um, the grounds, the birds, you know, the process, um, equipment. the equipment. So, Getting off the belly band um, 
too quickly is, again, not ideal. Um, it's okay to have a training wheel there if you need it. Yeah. And um, it doesn't mean your dog's any less. It means you're taking more time to make that dog fully understand the program. Everybody has a different amount of time that they can put into training, you know, life, work, whatever it may be. So don't rush to get off the belly band. But once it's time to get off the belly band is basically when you're not using it. You don't have to remind your dog to, uh, you know, not uh, break on the flush, the shot, multiple birds, another dog going for a retrieve. Uh, your dog is, is standing there and acting appropriately, so it goes to the neck. The dog learns that point of contact so well that no matter where you end up putting it, they'll stop. They'll stop. Constant pressure just means to stand still. So, so with enough with, with enough time and reps, and, and just consistency, your dog is learning that it's no longer really the pressure on the belly. It's just pressure overall to where they're they're going to naturally create those associations on their own uh, based off what you're just describing. Did I understand that correctly? Right. Like the flush of the bird means stand still. The shot of the gun means stand still. The fall of the bird means to stand still instead of all those things mean go. They all mean stand still. So, you know, we'll do just a field run with no birds and shoot a starter pistol. The dog should stop. We'll do um, a field run and flush a bird so that the dog's not coming into the scent cone. It means stop. So we prep all those scenarios at different times, um, not only on a complete bird run, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, we'll teach them stop to flush, teach them stop to shot, teach them um, stop on another site of another dog. Um, And we also teach the transition on our course. So once the dog comes off the belly band and we put it on the neck, we're back on the course, stopping them on the course, stopping them in the short grass, what we call, you know, the, the desk work, the short grass, and then we go to the field. Mm-hmm. And it's important. I think we may have skipped over a little bit. This is the only time we're using continuous pressure. Everything else is done with a nick. Um, now, how we do that is, is the collar's always set on continuous. We're just manipulating with how much time we're using our finger on the butt mm-hmm. between a nick and continuous. That way you don't have to manipulate buttons midstream. Yeah. You're never going to get that right. <laughs> right. A continuous can be a nick, and nick can't be continuous. That's what I tell everybody that, that's afraid of that button with the C on it. It's just like, just just tap it. It's it's not that big of a deal. If you just want a nick, just, just hit the button and let off of it, and guess what? You got a nick. That's yeah. exactly right. Uh, so... This is that's why that's why the dog understands that instead of coming to you, that would be a nick uh, if needed. Um, then there, it's continuous pressure, and that's simulating or was simulated on the wool post with the wool post rope around the flat. Continuous pressure. So we just talked about the naming, and we're not naming until until you get all the way to the neck and and, and pretty much at the very end of all this. What about the release command? 
at, at what point do you have just a general, okay, go on moment? Are you waiting to the very end on that as well? Because at the very start of this on the woe post, Mark, you, you talked about you're not giving a, a release command. You're just letting off the pressure, and that's what they're learning that they're trying to get to. So when people talk about their release commands, I know ideally we're hoping that we walk up to the dog, line them up, and say fetch at the end of this, but sometimes that's not the case. When are we applying the release command on all this? Well, we use it, um, again, through our foundation training. Um, we'll use the command lead for a release, that little pop or cue to go forward. Uh, we use it on our courses, um, the pop or cue to go forward. Uh, as we train um, with our e-collar, our little nick on the neck is going to be to move forward. And then within the home environment or in our, our foundation training on the course or some of the drills we do, we will name that release word because we will use it maybe to release the dog to eat, to go out the door, to leave the kennel, to um, go on a place board, and then we can release them from the place board. So we release our dogs in, in three ways, either a verbal command, a um, cue from either a check cord or a command lead, or a cue from the e-collar. Mm. Makes sense. So you pretty much go through this entire program. You get the dog to where you're, you're wanting it. You, you have the commands, the release, and, and the actual command woe overlaid if, if you desire. What about the maintenance of it? You know, we talk all the time about sometimes uh, dogs need spring cleaning is what I call it. You know, it, th this is a reflection on me as a handler. Sometimes when I come through hunting season by the end of it, I got a little spring cleaning to kind of church my dogs back up on their obedience and short grass. How do you guys handle that on the woe post? Do you guys start all the way back over and then just kind of high speed through the program or are you guys just kind of, it's a dog by dog basis? First of all, once the dog's off the woe post, it's almost, and you can never say never, but you just don't go back to the woe post. You're off the woe post. That's done. It's kind of like going back to the force fetch table. You rarely have to do that, if at right. all. Um, so really... <laughs> Really, the spring cleaning is 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 your mistake. Is it's your lackadaisical in the winter or, or whatever you might want to call that. But what we tend to do is we relax and we don't hold the dog to the same standards all the time. Yep. So you know you're constantly training your dog constantly. So if you hold your dog to the same standards all the time, like he has to stand still before he goes outside, or has to stand still before he gets his shower, he has to stand still or sit still before he gets in or out of the truck or whatever, the kennel, the, the crate, it doesn't make any difference. All that is prep. All that is your spring cleaning. So what I do, let's take the chain gang, for example. When I release a dog from the chain gang, we release with that little pop or however we're going to do it. We rarely, if ever, touch the dog on the head. A lot of people like to touch the dog on the head, tap on the head for a release. We don't do that because I like the remote release. Yeah. And if you're a bird hunter out there and you got a dog on the other side of a coolie or a tree or bush or whatever. It, it gets annoying. So I like the remote release. So like Martha said, we use the e-collar a lot for, to do that. We'll use a verbal to do that. But what I'll do is I'll get them off the chain gang. And in the first three steps, I stop them. 
with that continuous pressure. And that gets them in the mindset is like, okay, this isn't a you session. <laughs> we're, we're working here. So that's your spring cleaning. That's your, that's your follow-up. If, if you, before you, when, so, okay. Before you get out of the, go into the field, you can let the dog out of the crate. Dog jumps out onto the ground. You stop him right there. Stop him. Make him stand still right there in the side parking lot, edge of the field, whatever you stop him. That's your, your little cue to say, you're going to stop in the field. Well, I'm going to stop you in the field at some point. Most times, once you're at that level, you won't have to stop the dog in the field. It's pretty amazing. If, if you really took the time to do this step by step, the dogs retain this. Yeah. You I won't, mean, you won't have much spring cleaning. We had that. a dog that came back um, from two summers ago. He's with us now. And as soon as we put, we went back to the belly van because it's been a period of time and we asked the owner how he was doing things and it wasn't quite the way we do them. We just put the belly band back on the dog knew immediately. Mm. But first time low one stop. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Now the neck, I couldn't go to the neck, even though he was transferred to the neck, I couldn't do that because the owner overused the collar for that coming, right? Coming or healing. If you don't use the collar in several different ways, if you just use it to come, you know, it, or heal, that's what your dog's going to default to because that's what stopped the pressure, right? So we were in the process of transitioning him back to the neck. And that, that takes us to one of the major mistakes that we, we see is like misunderstanding the process. Like if you overuse commands, you overuse cues, on the wall post, the dog in the field is going to wait for those commands before they do anything. It's no longer, it's, it's simply you're, you're, you're forcing, you're, you're in the force mode and, and he will be there forever. So once the dog um, picks up on that, it's very difficult to, to, to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you, you want that dog to respond to the, to the cue, but you also want him to know what he's supposed to do. So you don't really have to do the cue. Right. You know, you know, it's it's subtle. It sounds almost like semantics, but it's not. It's very important to understand it. So, misunderstanding the process is a big mistake that I that we see with people. Like Martha was just saying, they only use the collar for the dog to come to me. Well, if you do that in the field, when you use that collar, that dog's coming to you, yeah. and you can't blame them for that. No, and, and we talk about it all the time in the bird dog world. You creating that default—that's where the whole "never teach a pointing dog to sit" comes from. Is you know, people oh, over man. time create that default to where no sit, no sit, and and over time with enough repetitions and attrition, you're creating that dog to where anytime there's pressure and a correction, the dog's default is to sit because that's how it's released pressure in the past. You're, you're, you guys are not talking about anything different than that other than it's just e-collar with recall. It, it's the same concept. Right. Yeah. And there is a way to fix that if your dog will come to you because you're, you're trying to get it to stop and it, you can't get it um, to understand anything else. Tie it to the wall post, but just to the neck so he cannot come to you and they have to stop. That mm. you, you, you can, but it takes a lot of time. Right. And then, and then the, the, you know, one of the other problems we see is people putting their own spin on it. 
you know, immediately putting the belly band on without doing any prep, throwing a ton of birds, uh, doing all this prep or not prep, but uh, uh, proofing on the wool post, gunshots and, you know, a hundred distractions and stuff like that, pulling off at angles. Don't do any of that. It's, you know, putting the, the, uh, the knot on the side versus underneath. They're putting their own spin on it, and it's really not helping the dog understand. Right. Um, the only time you move that knot is if you have the flushing dog. You'd move the knot to the top, behind the dog, up on, on uh, behind their hips, up on the top of the dog's back, and that'll make the dog sit. Okay. That's it. That's it? That's it. That's that's the wool post. That's... Actually, we went farther than well, We went all the way into handling, so... <laughs> um, that was good yeah that, that's pretty much it though i mean that that's what we do we don't do anything different um and we do it with every dog and it works for every dog doesn't ma- matter breed doesn't matter age doesn't matter dri- high drive low drive it works every single dog and that's that's what bought me in for sure and you could you could use this on a dog that you know, has been trained for a period of time that that is having um, breaking issues, you know, steadiness issues. So, but we wouldn't just because a dog's out there breaking on a bird and we got a test or a competition coming up, we're not slapping the e-collar on their belly and and making this happen. We're going to the woe post. We're teaching them all the prep, make sure they're understanding before we put that e-collar on. Mm. And we've done it with dogs that have been taught in different methods, and it works. Yep. Did you find, was it any quicker or easier for the dog to create the association with the action uh, if they were taught with another another method, perhaps, or is it just same overall? Pretty much the same overall, because yeah. it's completely new to them. Right. Yeah, they, they don't learn what the actual action or name of these commands are. Contrary to popular belief or, or uh, action by by other people, they learn by association. They're learning by the pressure. They're learning by the consistency and reps. And so, you know, the dog, while you may have taught the dog whoa, it doesn't understand whoa for the actual word whoa. Is that, that correct, Martha? No. Yep, exactly. Well, they, um, we want to just every time they uh, – Every time they move, we want to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. So <laughs> yeah. what are we labeling? The movement or are we labeling the standing still? Yep. And we're allowing that um, that natural time out to happen um, versus creating a, a, a longer time out. Like one of my dogs, um, I you can time it. Take your dog and whatever you're going to make them do um, – you know, stand on a, a place board, whatever. Um, you can time it. They will break or move at the same time regardless. I had a dog that at five minutes, no matter what I had, what I was doing, five minutes, I'd see her tail would go to the right, go to the left. She'd pick up one back foot and then pick up the other, and then she's going to move at five minutes. So I had to train her through five minutes. It was six minutes. It was seven minutes. It was 10 minutes. It was 15 minutes. It was a half hour. So every dog will self-release. We have to work through that. 
That's that's interesting. That sounds like a fun experiment on my end that I'm going to have to set up a camera and, and time my dogs on uh, place or just any command and just see where where their self-release threshold is. And And you'll see some kind of sign also that they're doing prior to the release. <clears throat> so either the, you know, their, their mind again is controlling their body. Right. So you might see um, a tail movement. You might see a front limb start to creep forward and they set it down. Mm. That's, and you know, that process is starting. That's interesting. You, you got my wheels turning on that. Yeah. And once they're, um, conditioned to the, the woe post and the belly band um, through, you know, a training process, you can elongate that self-release. Mm. You, you just extend that duration. You know, you can always go back to those three Ds of training and duration. That's just one of them. And it's, uh, you, you got distance, distraction, and duration, and, and duration that just, it, build on up. So I, I'm curious, I am going to have to screw around with that. But as Mark said, it sounds like we, we pretty much beat the, beat the woe post in the ground here. Uh, do you guys have anything interesting going on this year? I know you guys do a bunch of seminars and clinics. You have anything kind of scheduled on y'all's end tentatively yet? We got two Rick Smith seminars. We have one in, uh, July would be foundation and the one in May is uh, intermediate. the intermediate. We've got uh, what else? We have the uh, a, a woman's outdoor challenge uh, coming up. That date hasn't been set. We have a few NAVDA tests that are going to be happening here. One in June at, at our location for sure. <clears throat> um, what else? We don't have any. We have a first aid coming up this uh, Sunday. Yep, first aid course for canines this Sunday. Uh, that we're hosting here. That's through our NAV, the chapter, actually. But we're hosting it here at Webfoot. So we have quite a few things going on. Nice. So if people are interested, they can reach out to you guys, kind of see what seminars or clinics you still have open. I'll I'll have your guys' contact information and website and everything in the links of the show note if, if they're interested in the Rick Smith seminars. I'm, I'm hoping to maybe get up y'all, your guys' way and check one, one, if not both of them, out myself if, uh, if I can. But, uh, yeah, sounds like you guys are going to have a busy spring and summer as usual. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing we should know is that, you know, this, uh, we learned the, the woe post through the Huntsmith, um, method, um, and to read up on it or to get, gather more information, either attend a Rick or Ronnie Smith seminar. There's also under huntsmith.com, there's articles on the woe post, and uh, Ronnie uh, wrote a book called Training Bird Dogs with Ronnie Smith Kennels. And it goes through, you know, history and uh, different um, levels of the, the training process itself, which is a really great book and reference. And it details with good diagrams on the wall post. I mean, it's excellent. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, all kinds of resources out there, you know, the, the books, the website, your guys' clinics, uh, 
I, I just appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to come on and, and you know, regurgitate the stuff that you talk about day in, day out. I'm, I'm glad that you guys don't ever get sick and tired of talking about the woe post over and over and over again, uh, because this was great. This uh, this is exactly what I was after. It seems like anybody that has an interest in woe post, this this episode, I feel like should probably get them well on their way to, to understanding the method, which both of you have said multiple times. That's the important part in this entire thing is understand what it is that you're actually after throughout this whole process. Right. And you can learn so much about your dog and their dog's behavior and their, their um, little small cues that they're giving through the woe post. Mm -hmm. You just have to, you know, watch. Yep. I love it. Well, again, thanks for your time. I know you guys have uh, a client meeting coming in, so I'll, I'll let you go. But again, thanks for your time and uh, we'll be checking in soon. I'm sure. Okay. Thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark and Martha presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, as well as Poodle Pointer Society. Uh, this was obviously when I when I planned out the Woe series. One of the main things that I knew that I was going to lead off with was the woe post. And I don't, I don't really think I need to go into too much detail as to why. It's been around forever. It's, it's kind of a staple in the bird dog world. Uh, I, I would argue this is probably the most common method that when I'm talking to people on how they're training woe or, or how they're learning or, or attempting it, it tends to go through the woe post. And for all the aforementioned reasons on the actual episode with Mark and Martha, and and I love just having them on as they've been uh, kind of a staple with GDIY for a couple years now. They're, they're always fun to talk to and a wealth of knowledge, and I, I love exploring topics like this with them. But uh, I'm not going to give too much thought of my own personal thoughts on the woe post because, A, I don't think that it, it really needs my opinion or, or thoughts on it. It's been around long enough to where you have people such as Mark and Martha and the Smiths and the books and plenty of uh, resources out there that that know the the method and the process much better than I do. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut on that. But it, it is one of those that's tried and true. Uh, it, you can't really go wrong with it uh, fr- from my point of view because it, it's I know plenty of people that, that swear by it, and, uh, and it would not be around as long as it has been and continues to almost grow in popularity uh, from my perspective if it didn't actually work. So uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find another method to, to trump this one, but we're going to give it a shot the next few weeks. We're, uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to give it a go. We're going to continue on this, this journey of woe and uh, continue on to other methods. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, but yeah, so circling back a couple weeks ago, we, we did the trainer fight episode and, uh, I kind of knew when we recorded it, it was going to be a big deal. Uh, I, I knew that we were going to get a lot of engagement. We we're going to get a lot of feedback and, and boy was, uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't wrong. I got a ton of messages, Instagram, Patreon, text message, Phone calls. I think I've I've been on the phone discussing and, and debating with more people since that episode, and uh, all I keep getting told is people want more of it. That that being said, 
it is hard. It's taken years to th- this episode just fell in my lap. Ultimately, I explored this idea of having two trainers come on and discuss their their thought processes and methods a couple years ago. It is very hard to not only find people with opposing views that uh, will agree to come on and, and talk about it or discuss it in such an open manner. But finding them that can actually come on and discuss it without getting overly heated or combative, that's the hard part. So for all the listeners out there that that really enjoyed that episode, uh, they keep giving suggestions. They're asking for people that that talk on this method versus that method or this over that. Uh, give me examples. Give me suggestions as far as trainers. I would be more than happy to have more episodes such as that. I'm all ears. I'm I'm open to suggestions and topics and uh, and trainers. Ultimately, you can't have a trainer fight without an actual trainer. And uh, so I got plenty of people to network on my end. If you guys guys have somebody that you think would be just a great guest uh, for a potential topic or whatever, by all means, reach out to me and let me know because, uh, again, I, I knew that it was going to be a, a, a highly received episode and, and it's just, it's still coming at me. So uh, keep, keep them coming. Give me your thoughts. I've gotten some really, really well thought out emails and, and messages from people to more so than just, hey, I enjoyed the episode, do more of them. I, I got really thought out, long, detailed emails uh, that I've ended up on the phone with numerous of you. So for everybody that enjoyed that, thank you for listening. I, I, I hope to do more so. And uh, yeah, if you have any thoughts or criticism or, or constructive feedback on that format, then by all means, uh, shoot them to us. I, I really enjoyed it. So uh, with all that being said, I'm not going to keep you guys too much longer. Longer. I'm not going to go down the typical housekeeping list. All I'm going to ask you to do, just one thing, is very simple. Go to YouTube and hit subscribe on Gundog It Yourself. I have the link down in the show notes if that's easier for you to hit. Uh, we have a couple videos out now. The Rough Grouse video I did with Nick Larson uh, this past fall, as well as the Arizona video. And I'm already cranking on the next one. It's going to have a little bit more of a conservation focus to it. Uh, so I hope you enjoy that. But by all means... Uh, if if there's one thing that, that you could do for me, if you enjoy the, the podcast, if you enjoy Gundog It Yourself, just go to YouTube, hit that subscribe button. It really, truly means a lot to us. And that's really the only housekeeping I'm going to hit on you. I'm going to pretty much wrap this up. I'm going to go on into the extended outro uh, for the Patreon patrons where I'm going to talk about command selection and uh, just my overall general thoughts on that. So if you want to tune into that, by all means, go join Patreon and uh, sign up for that and you'll you'll see that there but again uh thanks for hitting download thanks for hitting play it means the world to us and uh, we'll check back next week guys thank you for listening to gdiy if you enjoy this podcast please remember to take a moment to rate review and share with a friend also be sure to follow us and our partners on facebook and instagram under gundog it yourself if you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. 
Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again. And a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.